Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, that you're with us, that you're for us, that you're not against us. Um, Lord, how happy are those who find themselves in your house for us to worship together, to sing over one another, even though we're all at different varying degrees of believing this stuff half the time, that we continue to remain faithful to you and to this body, to show up, to sing, to pray, uh, to meditate on scripture, to engage with one another, that it would make... um, May we continue that kind of diligent faithfulness, Lord, to show up time and time again, regardless of what we're feeling in the moment or regardless what we believe or don't believe in the moment, that over time we would look more and more like the true body of Jesus that you see us to be. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're going to be reading uh, the passage from the New Testament for Everyone translation, uh, which is by N.T. Wright. Um, and I really like the way that he does a lot of things. He's very faithful to, uh, to the, the original words, in this case in the Greek. Um, but he really tries to hone in on his perspective of what's happening in the first century. We've talked about several times with Galatians especially. There's this major conflict between um, the, the non-Jewish believers, followers of Jesus that are being brought into the family of God, um, and these agitators that come along behind Paul and are trying to say, oh, no, 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 Paul gave you half a gospel. You have to maintain Torah. You have to get circumcised. You have to jump through all the hoops to really be acceptable in God's sight. And that's the thing that Paul's pushing back on and saying, no, like not only does that undo the freedom that you have in Jesus, but that actually like binds you back into this almost kind of legalistic performative sense of religion and you will completely miss what it is that you're being offered by Jesus. And so N.T. Wright's uh, translations of scriptures do a very good job of kind of bringing in that, that struggle with like, how do, how do we maintain this faithfulness of our Jewish roots? But we kind of go beyond that and welcome others into it. So this is Galatians 6 verses 1 through 10. My dear family, if someone is found out in some trespass, then you, the spiritual ones, (laughs) we're going to get name tags made for everybody to delineate who those people are. You, the spiritual ones, should, should set such a person right in a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves. You too may be tested. Carry each other's burdens. That's the way to fulfill the Messiah's law. So that's the, tra- that's the, what the juxtaposition he's making. It's not about following the rules in order to please God and to make a good impression. The law, like Christ's law is to love one another, carry each other's burdens. If you think you're something when you're not, you should, you deceive yourself. Every one of you should test your own work and then you will have a reason to boast of yourself, not of somebody else. Each of you, you see, will have to carry your own load. And so we've been talking a lot about this seeming paradox that Paul gives us, this creative tension between carrying each other's burdens, carrying your own load. How do we determine which is which? If someone is being taught the word, they should share with the teacher all the good things they have. Don't be misled. 
God won't have people turning their noses up at him. What you saw is, or sorry, what you sow is what you'll reap. Yes, if you sow in the field of your flesh, you will harvest decay from your flesh. But if you sow in the field of the spirit, you will harvest eternal life from the spirit. Don't lose your enthusiasm for behaving properly. You'll bring in the harvest at the proper time if you don't become weary. So then, while we have the chance, let's do good to everyone, and particularly to the household of the faith. So we're continuing with this, each should examine their own work. Each of you are to do the creative best with what you have been given to do, as Peterson puts it in his translation. And we looked at a lot of different things in the very first message. What are some of the things that would be our personal burden? And what are some of the things that are a communal burden? And so today I want us to explore um, the personal responsibilities that we have uh, to time itself. I think this is definitely one of those things that we often do not uh, take hold of our personal responsibility. And, and as I said, a lot of times, uh, immaturity is where we place blame on others for why our lives are the way that they are. Um, and maturity is to grow up, to really own what is mine to do? What is it that I actually own at the end of the day and what is truly not? So here's my thesis for the day. God has created us with limitations, and it's up to us if they become a blessing or a curse. God has created you with limitations. And that is just a fact of life. You are bound by time and you are bound by matter. Okay? Now, you might be hearing that and saying, well, that doesn't sound particularly um, interesting, perhaps in some sort of like you know, cosmological, you know, metaphysical sense, like, okay, I'm bound by time and matter, et cetera, et cetera. But wh here's why this matters, because I feel like a lot of modern life actually works against our design, okay? That we were created to be in time, we were created to be in space, but a lot of our modern life, and this is, uh, I use kind of the, the, the word, the small l, liberalism, which is kind of an explanation of like the philosophical movement of Western society. Um, we look, freedom means that I have fewer and fewer boundaries, right? That's what it kind of means in our modern society. That if I can remove the boundaries and the hindrances, if I can overcome obstacles, then I am more free. Um, and that is in all different arenas of our life, but that's a general sentiment in Western society and in, in liberal societies, but especially within uh, the American experiment that we're looking for freedom from boundaries and therefore we're also looking for freedom from expectations. Okay, so perhaps you feel that in your life. It's like the fewer responsibilities and expectations you have, the more free you are. And then problematically, you uh, were very foolish and you fell in love and you got married, and then you had kids, and then you got this thing called a job? Like, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Like, why didn't you just go ahead and go hang out on an island for your entire adult life without any responsibilities? This is the kind of fantasies that are built into us to say, if I can get rid of the boundaries of time or space, expectations, then I shall be free. The problem with this is then that any kind of limitation that's presented to you is automatically perceived as a threat, okay? Anybody who tells you otherwise, that puts an expectation on you, says that there is a limitation to who you are and what you're capable of, is a threat. And then time becomes an enemy. 
How many of you feel like time is your enemy? If only there were more hours in the day, if there were more days in the week or whatever that might be, time is after you. Uh, But then your body is your enemy, okay? Because your body is a limitation. You can't escape this body. The um, French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre talks about this illusion of freedom that if we could shirk off all expectations of government and religion and family and all these things, we're still bound by our own bodies. We are bound by our own desires and our needs. And we see this as a crime. This is kind of a cosmic crime of God that we're stuck within these limitations. And I think this leads to a lot of the problems that we have in modern society. That time is our enemy, that physical matter is our enemy, and we need to overcome these boundaries. We need to push them off ourselves, whether it's like the, the transhumanist argument or whatever it might be, in order to be truly free. And I think that that works contrary to the way that God designed us, especially when you are familiar with the Genesis story and the way that we're designed. Because paradoxically, what we find in God's design of not just humanity, but of all creation, is that the greatest freedom that we can experience is through carefully cultivated limitations, okay? The greatest freedom that you can experience is to learn how to bless the limitations that you have been given in time, space, matter, and allow them to work the way that you were created to be. I've said it many times before, I think one of the the biggest lies we have in our society is that you are to be a self-made man or a self-made woman. And it's telling you that you are not obligated to any story except for the story that you decided that you wanted to live when you didn't have a story, which ironically is of self a story that you have been told. So when people tell you, you don't have any limitations, you shouldn't have any boundaries, there shouldn't be too many expectations on you, Those are boundaries and expectations that they're placing on you, which makes the whole thing terribly, terribly confusing on being a human being. So this is is how I came to know this. I went to art school, which is why I'm a pastor. Um, And my first painting class, I was really excited. I loved painting and all this. My first class, half of the semester, we were only allowed to use black and white paint. Anybody else here go to art school? Sort of? I went. For video game design. So. Video game design. Yep. Just the same. Just the same. Um, and it was like, you, you know, we start in this class and I'm like, wait a minute, we have one semester of painting and half of it I'm going to spend only painting in black and white? Like that feels too limiting, constricting. I need to be free. I need to be able to express myself and throw glitter everywhere and put beads on my, you know, all that stuff. And after we were like, got used to black and white, then we were allowed to introduce one color and that took like another month. And I'm like, we're running out of time. What about all the other colors? Like when do we eventually get there? And one of the things that I realized, especially through art school, learning the creative process, is that when there, are the, when there are really good boundaries and limitations put on me, that's what spurs creativity. And see, a lot of times when we think about creativity, when we think about art, it's like, oh, the best kind of art is when there's no boundaries, when you can just do whatever you want. And that usually leads to garbage. Um, <laughs> If you ever want to appreciate local art shows, don't get an art degree because you will become snooty and self-righteous and I just cannot enjoy it because I can oftentimes now tell when I'm looking at art where someone's like, oh, it's just about freedom of expression and just do whatever you want and that's art. And it's, it is technically maybe, but it's bad art. <laughs> really, really good art 
is when you learn the rules and then you learn creatively how to break them and bend them in order to lead you to new places. And you've all experienced this in life somewhere where it's actually when there have been limitations placed upon you or rules or regulations or expectations that spurred some sense of creative creativity in you, not to live outside of what you're created to be, but to live fully into it. I know um, Nikki Gumbel, who created the Alpha Course, talked about this, where um, the, his kids were in soccer. The coach calls him and says, I'm going to be really late. Can you run practice? Nikki knows nothing about the sports. So he comes in. He just takes a ball, and there's a bunch of little 10 and 11-year-olds, and he just goes, oh, okay, and he just throws it out on the pitch, and it's just they're miserable. They're bumping into each other. Nobody's having any fun. They don't really know what's happening. And the coach finally comes up on his bike, you know, blows the whistle, calls the kids all back in, separates them out into teams, defines the, the, the actual playing field, and begins to referee a game, and everyone's having a blast because they know why they're there and they have somebody that's helping them to live into that. And I think that that's the crime of the modern world is that if we have fewer and fewer, liber uh, uh, if we are liberated, liber you know, liberalism, if we are open and free from boundaries, then we will be who we're created to be. But I think the message of God is to say, no, bless the limitations that you have um, and allow me to show you who you were created to be so that those that fear of limitation becomes joy. So how do we convert our fear of limitations, our fear of time, that time is our enemy, that body's our enemy or whatever, how do we convert that into a sense of joy? We're going to be looking at a particularly wonderful passage of scripture. One of the finest meditations on time I think exists, and this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <clears throat> there is a time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is, has already been. And whatever has been before, or what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. What the, what the writer is so beautifully putting here, and if you know the larger narrative of Ecclesiastes, um, this writer's kind of writing this wisdom on the other side of wisdom. This isn't like conventional wisdom, but it's a recognition of what happens when we try to blow up all of our limits and just live for ourselves, and we begin to see the absurdity of the kind of life that ourselves and other people are trying to live, um, where the writer begins to tap into some of the deeper truths of the way that God has created time and the way that God has created matter. 
So the first thing that he's kind of teaching us here is like everything has its time. There's always seasons for things and you can't do anything about that. Oftentimes time is our enemy because we feel like we have to be able to control and manipulate the world around us. But rather what we're being invited to is a sense of discernment to say what is happening in this season. And rather than me trying to fight it, how do I give myself over to it so that the thing that God does within this moment brings me from death to life or brings me from fear to joy? And I think the question that the writer is inviting us to consider is like, what, what is heaviest on you in this season? Are you resistant to that? For many of us, our relationship to time is so aggressive that we don't feel like we can slow down and to actually process what's happening to us. Again, this kind of spiritual manifest destiny, always onwards and upwards, just keep going. And if I slow down and start feeling my feelings, that's a waste of time or that's going to be a crime against me. I just have to keep going. And I think tragically, I was even um, talking to someone about this recently that for like for their parents and many in our parents' generation, it's like, oh, there's no point in looking back to the past. We just need to keep moving moving forward. And that sounds like good advice, but it's incredibly damaging to us. So discerning what is actually heaviest on me in this season? What is the invitation from God in this place to further root myself in him and then to receive what's ever happening around me as an opportunity to see the goodness of God? And the writer uses these these words, beauty, he uses happiness, and he uses good. And he's not talking about frivolity. I think a lot of times that's what happens when we read Ecclesiastes, is we just think he's just going, yeah, just throw the whole thing out the window and everybody just get drunk and let's have a party until we die. I'd love it if that's what it said, but that's not what he's really saying. When he uses the terms like good, or when he says happiness, what he's talking about is that inherent joy of being alive in God's kingdom the joy that comes from knowing God. He says this elsewhere, like, I know no better joy than to know God and to be known by him and then to find purpose in our lives. That there's a difference between the meaningless toil that many of us participate in, again, because we feel like we're uh, a slave to time and the actual good work that God has given us to do. And a lot of times, the work that you have been given to do, it has almost nothing to do with the work itself. It's the purpose by which you do those things. And if you feel a sense of purposelessness in your life, that will affect everything. It affects your relationships. It affects your relationship to time. It affects how you understand what you're called to do. But what the writer's challenging us to say is that when we understand our purpose in this life, it converts our relationship to time to one of joy. Perhaps most powerfully, I love that phrase, that God has placed eternity in the human heart, yet none can fathom it. Do you ever have those days where you just feel like there's got to be something more than this? Like what I'm, there's got to be something more than what I'm experiencing right now. Do you know who doesn't ask those kinds of questions? Hamsters. <laughs> and palm monocots. John corrected me that technically palms are not trees. And I want to apologize to all the botanists in the room who are tremendously offended. And you said seagull is offensive to ornithologists? What about, what about when a gull flies over a bay and it's a bagel? <laughs> Fine. Okay. Anyway. Um, there's nothing else in creation that questions its own design except for human beings. And it's part of the radical 
heaviness of our free will. That God has placed eternity in your heart. You are, you are capable of glimpsing eternity on this deep level, like far beneath your psyche, far beneath your, your emotions and the storm of whatever's happening on the surface of your life. Like there's something in you that grasps that there must be, that you were created for something more than what you're experiencing right now. And that's what makes you restless. See, it's not that you're, it's not just that you worry that you're wasting your life or you're wasting time or the things that you're participating in are meaningless. It's this far deeper radical truth that on the deepest level of who you are, your soul, you know that you are created for more and that's what makes you restless now. But when you make it about these surface things that you just don't have enough time or your job sucks or your relationships aren't the way. You're, you're missing the deepest radical nature of how you've been created, that God placed eternity in your heart and you cannot comprehend that. You know, the Greeks in philosophy, they use this word that we've adopted in English called crisis. And crisis is an orientation to time when we recognize that whatever's happening around us brings inherent confusion um, and kind of brokenness. And the, the Greek philosophers would talk about how do you convert crisis to kairos? And Greek or uh, Christian theologians picked up on this idea that kairos is the word for eternity. But eternity, do, eternity doesn't mean just forever and ever and ever in linear time. Eternity actually means to experience a moment when all possibilities and the deepest profundities of the universe are open to you if you would only listen. That's what kairos means. That's what eternity means. It doesn't mean I'm going to do the same thing. Because like, honestly, like if, if eternity in heaven just means we're doing what we're doing now and just keep going, I'm like, eh, I'm not really interested in that. Like, I don't want that. I don't have to keep paying taxes forever, you know? But if it's this kairos eternity where it's like a moment, and you've had this moment, right? You've had this moment where like, it feels like the entire universe opens up to you and you have this revelation of God and you're like, ah. And you just feel like you can breathe for the first time. Like, has Jesus ever given you one of those moments? And you're like, you just like, it's just like you're awake. That's what kairos means. That's what eternity. So God placing eternity in your heart means that you're capable of these moments of just like waking yourself up from the hazy dream that becomes your normal, mundane, everyday life. And when you have those kairos moments of eternity, it's like it begins to bless every aspect of your life, that the most mundane moments become sacred, not because of the elements that are involved in them, but your interaction with time itself. But I think this is what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is really impressing upon us most deeply, that you have one precious yet brief life. This is it. Guys, this is all you get. What you're experiencing right now, there's no do-over. There's no coming back around. Like this is all you've been given, this precious, brief life. We see this time and again in scriptures. In the Psalms, it says, all men are like grass or the flowers of the field. They're here today and then they're gone tomorrow. And rather than that being something that says, oh, human beings' lives are worthless, it's saying, no, 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 just because it's brief does not mean it's precious to God, or does not mean that it's not precious to God, but God has only given you what, 70, 80, maybe 90 years if you're lucky. That's it. And that time is so precious to him. I was thinking about it earlier this week in a rather macabre way, because I like macabre things. And I like to say the word macabre, like, what do you want written on, what do you want written on your tombstone? Like, 
Wow, she made it through friends seven times. <laughs> Amazing. What a wonderful use of the life that God's given you, you know? What do you want it to say on your tombstone when you're dead and you're buried and you're worm food? What do you want the summary of your life to have been? Because the direction and purpose of your life determines what will drain you or sustain you. It has nothing to do with how much or how little time you have. It has nothing to do with what skills you have or what skills you don't have. It has nothing to do with what relationships you have or what you don't. It doesn't have anything to do with the opportunities that you have or the opportunities you don't have. It has everything to do with do you understand the purpose of your life. But because to live a purposeless life, there is no amount of activity or experience that will sustain you. You will find yourself drained. It is rarely about how much or little time we have. It is everything to do with how intentional we are with the little life that we have. And that you have a vision for where it is that you are headed. The difference between anxiety and despair is anxiety is a fear that tomorrow will not come while despair means I am worried that tomorrow will actually just be like today and that there is no change. As Ecclesiasticus opines, there is nothing new under the sun. What is the direction and the purpose of your life? What are you here for? What do you want to be known for? And when you begin to examine how you steward this precious life you have and the time that you have, does it actually reflect what you feel called to? And I think this is why it's imperative that we develop a rule of life. Now, the word rule can be intimidating to many of us, I guess, again, if we're kind of bringing, being brought out of this legalistic mindset, but the Greek word for rule comes from the word for trellis, which many of you would know uh, from like a vineyard. So I want to show you, you know, the kind of that, the, the poles and then, you know, the, the cables that enable um, a, a grape leaf, a grape plant to kind of grow up and then grow out. It's actually for the flourishing of the plant that there's some sort of structure that holds it in place so that it can be as productive and as fruitful as possible. And so in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries, when Christianity kind of became the state religion, like all of a sudden everybody's just Christian by default, there were a lot of desert mothers and fathers who chose to remove themselves from the normal everyday hustle and bustle of the Roman Empire and to enter into kind of a monastic perspective. At first, it was people living independently as hermits, and then it was forming these intentional communities, these monastic communities, and they would develop a rule of life that was helping them to shape their days, their weeks, their months, their years, to keep them attentive to the heartbeat of God. Because these were people that recognized the number one priority of life as a human being is intimacy with God. There's literally, literally nothing, nothing in this life that is worth more than knowing God and being known by God. And from that, everything else begins to change. Now, Dan Allender talks about this, this rule of life. He says, most people want to grow, but the price of growth is pain. A grapevine will not produce excellent wine grapes until it's pruned. It's the way of all growth and excellence. Submission to pain through discipline is the only route to maturity. 
when we feel like time is our enemy, when we feel like our bodies are a liability, that space, matter, it's just limiting and we need to shirk off responsibility and expectation and fight against the limitations in our lives. We live a purposeless life where the only point of who we are is trying to free ourselves from expectations. And it is not what we are created for. And a rule of life helps us to live into our limitations, to turn it from fear into joy. And the task of a rule of life is not to account for every single second of your life. Some of us can actually be so regimented in how we manage our time and our resources that we are still living a very joyless life. We're living a life of obligation. And that's not what I'm talking about, but it is to protect our margins in the face of the inevitable chaos of life, that we have spent enough time recentering on God, reminding ourselves of who we truly are and forging meaningful connections with other people, that when the chaos chaos of life comes, we're actually prepared for it. We have a degree of resilience to know how do we show up in the chaos of life with integrity and courage to be a loving presence to those who need it most. And perhaps most ironically for our American culture, slowing down and simplifying our lives may be what actually catapults us forward. How many of you feel that burden? Like you've got to, you've got to figure it out. You've got to become a better person. And you're like just constantly on the self-improvement tra- train and you're listening to every podcast you can and reading all the books and da-da-da-da. You're doing all this stuff and nothing's actually changed in your life because it's so muddied by this trying to work something up in yourself that you feel dejected and tired. But perhaps all you need to do is learn how to slow down, how to prioritize things in your life, how to simplify. And that's the thing that will catapult your growth. So when you came in today, you were given um, a half sheet of paper and a clipboard. Um, and there's three questions on that. I wanna, I'm gonna, so I'm going to briefly talk about those three questions. I'm going to give you a moment to reflect. And then we're going to develop a rule of life. So these three primary questions are perhaps the three primary places where we see time and energy uh, being invested through our personal choice. And again, the lines are not as clear as we would like them to be between what is my personal responsibility, my responsibility to other people, but I hope that you'll continue to work in it. So number one, what is the meaningful work that I'm engaged in? And what, what do I mean by work? What I mean by work is this, it's how do we see heaven on earth? That's the simplest way that I can explain what work is. That when we invest our time and energy into the earth as the earth, into the world as the world, we begin to see heaven manifest. And I don't mean that necessarily in some kind of flighty charismatic way, but I, even though I am a flighty charismatic, but I do mean it's like seeing the character of God on display in us and through us. And it's probably not a surprise to most of you that meaningless work often drains us. And again, it's very rarely about the, the hours of work that we're putting into that. Because you've probably had those moments where you've really invested long-term in something that's meaningful and it's taken up a lot of your time and you're exhausted at the end of it, but you feel so self-actualized, right? And there's probably been other things, maybe even in your day job, where you've put in an hour and you're totally toast and you're drained because it has nothing to do with the amount of time that you're investing in something. Remember, in art, again, in art school, we'd become obsessive in our design class. We'd have a project and literally work on it for 17 hours straight, like not eating, uh, you know, not sleeping. Like you're just like cutting out these stupid little squares, you know, with an X-Acto knife and all this. Like you became so obsessed with the work and you're passionate about what you do because you knew what you were there to do. 
But meaningless work drains us. And I think it leads us to, a lot of us to a crisis with our jobs. That maybe your job, what you do during the day, is not particularly meaningful. But that might be okay. Some of us just need jobs to afford us the space, time, and resources to live a meaningful life. Now, I would challenge you with this. With your job, are you actively working to create a world that you yourself don't want to work, live in? And if you're doing a job where you're creating a world that you don't want to live in, you need to get out of that job because it's not worth your soul. And it's not worth making excuses before God to say, well, Lord, you know, I would have loved to have done something that was kinder to the planet or kinder to other people, but at the end of the day, I got bills to pay. Like, it's not worth it. You live in a first world country, you will find another job. Are you actively working to create a world that you yourself don't want to live in? But where is the meaning in your life, the meaningful work? Perhaps it's not your job. Perhaps it's service. Perhaps it is volunteering. Perhaps it is being on mission. That's work. That's good, blessed, sacred work. The other form of work that we have in our lives is the work that we do to reveal the kingdom of heaven within ourselves. So therapy is work. How many of you are in therapy? All of us. Wow. Amazing. Therapy is work. It's not restful. It sure as hell isn't playful. It's horrible. But it's work. Spiritual direction is work. Sitting down with someone who can kind of attune to your journey with the Lord and begin to notice things that might help you to, to, to refocus, to recenter your energies. Study. Study is a discipline that is about work, about doing the work to understand the heart of God and what it is that you're called to do. Care for your body, for your mind, for your heart. This is work. It's not restful. It's not playful. It's good, holy work. The second question, what does it look like for me to play? Play is imperative, even as adults. How would I define play? I'd say that play is to engage in delight or to delight in the kingdom. Delighting in the kingdom, that's what play is. And just as there's a form of meaningless work, there's a form of meaningless play. And meaningless play, this kind of counterfeit indulgence, when we over-immerse ourselves in things that don't further root us in the goodness of our own lives, but actually remove us from our lives. This kind of form of escapism, whether it's you know, binging television shows um, or it's engaging in habits where in moderation something is good and joyful, but where we overindulge in those kind of compulsive needs to fill the gaps so that we can escape from our lives. This is that counterfeit play and it doesn't bring us life. And you know this. You know what it feels like to overindulge in things uh, that you're meant to enjoy that rob you from seeing the goodness of life. And it actually becomes about escaping your own life. So what does it look like for you to engage in good play? Maybe it's being outdoors and literally appreciating creation itself. Perhaps it's like listening to music, like actually, like how many of you had like listened to music? You, you, in the past week, you've sat down and you genuinely listened to music as opposed to it just being background noise. A couple of you, great, good. I heard uh, John O'Donohue on Monday mentioned um, the Violin Concerto in D by Rachmaninoff, I think. And I must have listened to it like six times over and over and over again, like li really listening to it, you know? Like I know the hook, 
I'm familiar with the hook. Like, you ever wonder, like, some of these classical guys, when they're, like, writing, and they're like, oh, this hook, this hook is a banger. This one's going to get people. And they, like, put it off, you know, where they, like, te- like, Beethoven does this all the time. Like, he teases you. He's like, dun, 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 dun. Mm, no, okay, not yet, not yet, not yet. And he's like, ba, 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 mm-mm. And then, like, you're waiting, like, 18 minutes, and then all of a sudden he's like, bam, 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 bam. And you're like, wah, you know? Like, actually, like, listen to music. When were you moved by a piece of music? And I'm talking about, like, not just having How I Met Your Mother on in the background while you're doing your work. Like, what is that? But to watch something and to be so overcome with laughter that your belly is shaking. Or to come into tears because you're experiencing a story about the human struggle that's just so meaningful. Like, when was the last time that you actually engaged in beauty that rooted you more deeply in your life, that you saw the film that changed the way that you see everything else, that you listened to the music that moved your spirit? Maybe for some of you, it's the act of creation. It's learning how to play the guitar or painting and knowing that you're terrible and that's fine because it's got nothing to do with the product. It's about engaging in the beauty of creating in the way that God creates. And then the third one, what is it that brings me true rest? And that means rest with God and rest with myself. I think rest is kind of a coming home. If work is about manifesting the kingdom of heaven on earth, if play is about delighting in the kingdom, I think rest is about coming home to the kingdom, to coming home to God, coming home to ourselves. And meaningless rest drains us. Like play, meaningless rest can be our attempt to escape our lives that doesn't bless them and allow them to be good and joyful. So that when we come back to life after meaningless rest, it feels like nothing has changed. So what do you do in order to contemplate the love that Christ has for you to keep you grounded? That's rest. Coming to rest in the presence of Jesus. Being able to just sit quietly with Jesus and to receive his love. How do you come back to yourself as a human being and not a human doing? You know, there's one spiritual discipline that God commanded us to have, and it's the Sabbath. All the others, good ideas, they're optional. He said you have to slow down every seven days, and you have to stop doing. And and it's the care of God to demand this of us, because what he's saying is you need to remember that it is not in your performance and your achievement that you have your identity. So I love to think of Sabbath as like a very intentional way of wasting time in the name of the Lord. How many of you love to waste time in the name of God? And I believe that good Sabbath practice anchors all the other commands. Because doesn't it just feel like you need a genuine break every seven days? Like it feels like we're created for that. And when you begin to write your rule of life around Sabbath, it transforms your week. But rest a lot of times is about solitude. And I've talked to many about, of you about this in spiritual direction, that loneliness is the fear of being alone because you don't know what to do. You don't know who to perform for or whatever it might be. And solitude is the joy of being alone, the joy of being alone with God. And again, it's not about the activity. It's not about the time that you're spending in it. It's everything to do with your attitude. What are your expectations there? That when I enter into solitude, is it the joy of being alone or is it the fear of being alone? 
then perhaps that means that you need a discipline of solitude or silence in your life. Perhaps you need a daily office prayer rhythms that keep you anchored. So I'm going to give you three minutes and I want you just to look through those three questions and ask really about yourself. What is real meaningful work look like in your life right now? Or what could it look like? What does it look like for you to play? What actually helps you to delight in the kingdom and what brings you true rest? So take three minutes and contemplate that. So now I want you to, to flip that piece of paper over. And what you'll see there um, is a calendar. It's a very basic uh, discipline. Um, I've used this with several of you because I think it's so simple, um, but so helpful for us. And it's just called uh, 21 squares. So you'll have something like this. You can't see the lines in between because I'm not great at making graphics. I have an art degree, but I don't know how to make graphics. And it's very, 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 very simple. Uh, you've got your seven days out of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then you're breaking it into morning, afternoon, and evening. And so this is a way to really take stock of what are my rhythms through the week that help me to stay true to my priorities. And as a Christian, our priority is first of all to spend time with God, and then secondly, to be with others in a meaningful way. And then third, to be with ourselves in a meaningful way. And my challenge is going to be to you to establish Sabbath. Now, maybe 
you know, you can't have a whole day right now. That's okay. Can you block out a portion, like a morning, an afternoon, or an evening to say, this is my Sabbath. This is me taking a rest, me wasting time in the presence of God. Um, perhaps if you're married and you have children, you need to negotiate those times so that people take it. But I think, again, it's an example of where we just make too many excuses to not do what the Lord is asking us to do because he knows better than we do what is good for us. And so when we let our Sabbath time slip away, so perhaps it's one portion of a day, perhaps you can take in a whole day and to say, this is going to be my Sabbath and I'm going to figure out what are the things that I do in this space that actually bring me genuine rest. Um, perhaps there's a, a particular storm in your life, you know, or a season as you're seeing in Ecclesiastes. There's something that you know is on the horizon um, and you need to spend some time with the Lord working through that. What are two weekly rhythms of engagement that you could use to help you to carve out that time. And you know, I'm very fond of saying that the things that we place is, as our rhythms, we are choosing not to choose. We make these things non-negotiable. So like, you know, I hope the first square, Sunday morning, would be pretty simple for you to know what to put there. <laughs> it's to be here and to show up on time and to worship with everyone. And like, and again, there's a mental shift here that needs to happen because a lot of times we wake up on a Sunday morning or whatever and we say, well, do I want to go to church or do I not want to go to church? Or what am I feeling today? And I'm going to take decisions out of my feelings or do I really have, you know, chores that I need to do or whatever it might be. And there we convert the opportunity to gather together with the body of Christ and worship. We're converting it into a chore, a thing that is going to rob us of our time and our energy. And it probably has more more to do with your attitude towards it than anything that's being asked of you. And I think these disciplines, a lot of times, it's choosing not to choose. It's to being, to say, Sunday mornings, I choose not to choose to do with, like, with my time. That is my time for the Lord. It's my time for community. And I'll do my chores in those other blocks, or I'll do my homework in those other blocks, or whatever it might be. Um, perhaps some of you are in a community group, so mine's on Thursday evenings. And I choose not to choose what I do with my Thursday evenings. If someone wants to ask me to hang out or whatever, or there's, go to the movies, and it's Thursday's the night, it's not an option for me. Sorry. That night is carved out for my people to be in this place because I need that. I need that time with my people. Because if I don't have it, I'm cranky, and I don't like God very much, and I don't like myself very much, and I don't like people very much. But I have that time. And these people, they're not even my friends. I mean, some of them are. The ones that are here are. This is what I mean, because we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about friendship. Like, these aren't people that I hang out with all the time and like we're all up in each other's, like we, we have a reason for why we're in each other's lives and it's razor sharp and it's like we are going to come before the Lord, we are going to open up our lives to one another, we're going to pray and advocate for each other. That's what we're doing with this time. It's not a hangout session, although we really still need to plan this time to watch. Uh, what are we going to watch? Prince of Egypt. Yeah, we've been, we've been planning on that for a while. We're going to do it eventually. But like, it's not a hangout time. It's like, this is the time for me to be with my people and to wrestle with the deep things of life and to engage with God. And I don't make other decisions on Thursday nights except being with them. 
So we have these communal rhythms that we establish in this. We have our Sabbath, we have our communal rhythms. And then what are your personal rhythms? Is it a daily office of prayer? Is it doing a daily examine prayer, which we're gonna talk about next week, like two times a week, like Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings, I do this kind of prayer that keeps me in my priorities, keeps me anchored in God. And that changes and converts the way that I see the rest of my time. We've talked about that like with tithe, the first fruits changes the way that I see the rest of the 90%. When we prioritize our time with God and intentional time with others and time to be with ourselves that's good and healthy and roots us deep in our life, it transforms the rest of our time. And I think you will realize you do actually have enough hours in a week. There is enough time. We have to be delivered from this miserly mentality we have of like, oh, there's just never enough time to get everything done. Yeah, there is. You just need to own the time that you've been given because it is precious and because it's beautiful. So I'm going to give you another two or three minutes. Sit with that. Consider what perhaps what are your rhythms now or what are the rhythms that you need to solidify or what are some of the new rhythms and practices that you need to establish? And maybe you don't have a very concrete understanding like for your, you know, your daily office or, or your times of prayer. Maybe you don't know what it looks like yet, and that's fine. Just block that out and say, whatever it is, I'm going to do the work to figure out what is my Tuesday morning prayer rhythm that keeps me anchored in God. So I'm going to give you another two or three minutes to do that. You have one 
incredibly precious, but incredibly brief life. And it contains within it so much potential for meaning. Like you have an opportunity to make something amazing happen when you anchor yourself in the Lord and when you reassess what work, rest, and play look like in your lives and you begin to reclaim what is being robbed from you by modern life in your time to bless those limitations and to begin to make them work for you. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of time to be delivered from busyness. It takes a lot of time to be converted from meaningless management of our time. But the core of what's happening there is that we never slow down enough to ask, what is my life really about? And do I believe that my life is as precious as God thinks it is? Or am I really just here to pay taxes and then die? And so there's these deeper questions that are being invited of each one of us in how we manage our time. And we need to slow down enough to be able to hear the voice of Jesus calling us home to remind us of who we really are. Because if we can't sort that journey out, it doesn't matter um, what we do with our days or weeks or hours, um, because we'll just continue to find ourselves in the same cycle. So I invite you to stand with me. And uh, we're going to enter back into a time of worship. And I'm going to invite some of our elders and our leaders to go to either side. And if you need prayer, if you need someone to, to bless you, to remind you of who you really are, they're here for you. If you have supplication that you want to ask the Lord for something, for some insight, they're here to pray over you. If you, um, if you want to confess something about the way that you have uh, seen, devalued your own precious life or that you've never really thought about these things and you want someone to pray through that with you, that's why these people are here. Um, but we're going we're gonna to transition into worship um, with a brief uh, liturgical prayer. And this is one um, that would come from the daily office that I find myself doing each day that helps to ground me. And again, it's like, it's frustrating. I was telling my therapist, the work that I was doing this week, how frustrating it is that I can just so clearly notice the time that I do my daily office in the morning and the days that I don't because the days that I don't, I'm usually like really grumpy and like, I don't care for people too much, but the days that I do, I'm like, gosh, darn it. People are just the best, aren't they? Like they're amazing. Um, and it, and it challenges something deeper within me. So we're going to pray together and then we're going to spend some time in worship. So in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit, amen. It's going to be call and response. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Who is it that you seek? We seek the Lord our God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen. Lord have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen. Lord have mercy. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen. Do you seek him with all your strength? Amen. Amen. Christ have mercy. And together, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.